where we're continuing our study in Acts, coming to Acts 14. There are some notes over on the side if you'd like to fill those in. But we're going to read uh, our text, Acts 1 through verse 18. I don't think we'll get that far, but that's, that's what we're looking at. Acts 14, beginning at verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of the people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia. Lystra and Derby and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they called Barnabas, Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowds, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. What an interesting story in the Bible. And probably a chapter that I was speaking to Rita and I said, I don't think I've heard anyone quote from this chapter mention this story, even though it's it's quite an unusual story, and I'm reminded often that we, we know our Bibles so little, if somebody told us to mention something from Acts 14, we probably didn't memorize any verses from 
this section of Acts, but it may be, it is worthwhile, of course, to study the entire book. And just to make sure that we get our uh, mental juices flowing, in the last chapter, what was the, the main city, Paul and Barnabas, where you could say two different cities, what were the main cities and places they were preaching at? You gotta have a review. I think, yeah, even 21 days, yeah. Yes, which one? Pisidian Antioch, that's right. And Acts 13 had a lot to say. Paul's uh, recorded, his first recorded long sermon at Pisidian Antioch. And of course, before that, they were on the island of Cyprus preaching. So their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas sent out by the, the church at Syrian Antioch, they're advancing through these regions of southern Galatia. And they're preaching the gospel, they're establishing churches. I gave the title today, Church Planting at Iconium and Lystra. Church Planting at Iconium and Lystra. In verses 1 through 7, we see they're preaching at Iconium primarily. And then in 8 through 20, they're preaching at Lystra. And we'll we'll go into those towns. Um, and you can see them, and we'll look at the maps if you have those in your Bible uh, and then after they're done at Lystra, they will read about how they actually were uh, appointing elders, verse 23, in every church. And they were at the churches in Lystra, Iconium, and then back to Antioch. So their efforts were not merely just to tell people about Christ, but tell people and for those people to be saved and churches to be established. So church planting at Iconium and Lystra. Well, verse 1, and remember the habit of Barnabas and Paul when they came to a city, uh, where did they go to preach? Synagogue. Verse 1, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews. and, And it has the word together, which is interesting. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, So at least Paul and Barnabas, maybe some disciples had followed them from Antioch and even Cyprus, we don't know. But at least Paul and Barnabas, they enter this synagogue and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Now this town, and maybe you can look in your at your map, in my Bible it's the last map, and you can see... Uh, we're looking at primarily the area of modern-day Turkey. And you can see they came up from Cyprus to Perga, and then they went up to Pisidian Antioch, and now they're heading about 90 miles um, east to this town of Iconium. And Iconium was a place where several of the Roman roads uh, met together, so it was it was a place of hubbub and and transactions and sharing of ideas. So it was a great place to to bring the gospel. It was most likely somewhat cosmopolitan. At least people were coming and going into the city of Iconium. Actually, its history tells us that it was a place where governors regularly heard legal cases. So there was. A lot of um, a lot going on, including some type of uh, legal review and cases that the people would bring to their governors 
and that's what was happening to a degree at Iconium. But they came preaching the gospel of Christ, and they spoke in such a way. That's an interesting description if you think about it. How would you uh, interpret that? They spoke in such a way, or of such a kind, or with a result that they were preaching Christ as the Messiah, the only Savior of sinners, but... What would that mean in such a manner? Pardon? Powerfully, Powerfully, yes, I like that. With power. What are the other descriptions of how they preached? Evangelistically, they were bringing the gospel. Persuasively, yes. Scripturally, yes. Great words. They preached with this freedom from the Holy Spirit. We'll hear more about that in a moment. They preached surely practically, clearly, with authority, with power, passionately, persuasively. They spoke in such a way. And Luke is recording this history and and telling a story. He doesn't really go into the details. He doesn't mention the exact message. We don't even hear it. It just says they spoke in such a way, which is an interesting description of preaching the gospel. But the effect is surely what Luke wants us to see, that they spoke in this passionate, powerful, evangelistic way that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. There was a mini-revival. Many people believed the gospel and were saved. But, conversely, uh, verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieve. Verse 1, we had people who believed. Verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. The Jews did three things. One, they disbelieved. They were, and if you look in your column, it has, uh, if you have column references, you could also translate it disobeyed. To disbelieve is to disobey, and that's what these Jews did when they heard the gospel. They refused to believe it, as the Holman Bible translates it. They refused to believe. Robertson said, to disbelieve the word of God is to disobey God. Disbelieving or not believing is disobeying. And one verse that comes to my mind is 2 Thessalonians 1.8 where it speaks of Jesus coming to judge those who did not believe. It says that he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is a command. Repent and believe. It's not optional. It's a command and a duty that God brings to people. But these Jews at Iconium disbelieved. They refused to believe what Paul was saying. They would not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They disbelieved. So lesson one of seven, clearly there are only two responses to Christ. Belief and disbelief. There are only two responses to Christ or the gospel. Belief or disbelief. It's very clear and there's this contrast that Luke brings up in verse 1. The gospel went forth. They spoke in such a way that many believed. Verse 2, but the Jews disbelieved. This very stark contrast. Disbelief and belief. 
And that's the, that goes, it's the same with us today. We either believe or we don't believe. There's no in-between. There's two types of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. There's no neutrality, and the gospel never allows that. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. You're for or against. Not only did they not obey the gospel call, but they were so adamantly against the apostles that it says they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. You know, think of, you're stirring something. You're in the kitchen cooking. You're stirring up here. They were stirring up trouble in the minds of the Gentiles. They, they brought in doubts. Well, is it really true? Could Christ really be risen from the dead? And they were skeptics. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, and they definitely didn't want the Gentiles to believe either. It was not only the uh, the proselytes to Judaism, the Greeks who were proselytes, but we're going to see in a moment the entire city, or a large portion of the city, was involved, and the Jews did not want other people to believe. They were very much against the preaching of the gospel. So they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. And thirdly, it says that they embittered. They embittered uh, them against the brethren. They were poisoned. They turned them against. They probably were saying things about Barnabas and Paul. Who are these guys? Where are they from? They're telling stories. These are fables. Don't listen to them. Maybe they said, look look how they look. They're nothing to look upon. In some way, they were turning the people against the apostles. They were embittering and poisoning them against, actually, it doesn't say the apostles, but it says who? Did you catch it? The last two words of verse 2, they did all this against the brethren. So it seems it's more than just Paul and Barnabas. It's all of these people that were believing. They were trying to turn the hearts of the Gentiles against the brethren. Well, verse 3, and think of verse 3 and 4 for a moment. We come to this uh, grammatical device that we mentioned a month ago. And if you've had your New Testament Greek, it's that men, de, on the one hand and on the other hand. Here it is again, verse 3. We just have it translated, therefore they spent a long time, but it's it's actually there in the text. On the one hand, this is what's going to happen. The work of Christ will move forward, verse 4. But on the other hand, the city is divided. So it's on the one hand and on the other hand. Luke, he did it in verses 1 and 2 with a contrast. Now 3 and 4, he's going to show, on the one hand, the work of Christ is is moving forward, but on the other hand, there's going to be challenges. So let's look at verse 3. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Well, despite the attack of the Jews and this embittering uh, uh, task that they had to turn away people from the gospel, the apostles 
called in this case, Barnabas and Paul, those sent with a mission, decided not to flee, but to spend a long time there, some say up to six months, uh, preaching and establishing uh, a church or churches, which we'll see in verse 23. But they spent a long time there, uh, building up the believers, teaching and preaching the word to them. Well, what were they doing? It says they were speaking boldly. And that's that beautiful word that we've heard, parousia, that this unreservedness of speech from the Holy Spirit, this boldness, and they were doing this with reliance upon the Lord. And I believe I noticed uh, this morning here, yes, with reliance is in italics. It's simply the preposition upon the Lord. But I, I believe it's a good interpretation and translation that they were preaching in such a way that they were just not only preaching about Jesus, but they were relying and and casting themselves upon him to be sustained in the act of preaching. They were preaching with reliance upon the Lord. They were not trusting in their eloquence or their education or their erudition, but they were preaching with reliance upon the Lord. Lesson two, gospel work must always be done with this reliance upon the Lord. Gospel work, and if whether it's evangelism that we do personally or as a church or the more formal preaching of the Word, it must be done with reliance upon the Lord. We don't rely upon our cleverness or the verses we memorized or the particular format that we're going to give someone. We need God to do something with the truth that we're seeking to give out. And therefore, Paul and Barnabas, as they were preaching the word, they were relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel work, our work here at Pilgrim Bible Church, and you yourselves through the week, we must do the work of God with reliance upon him. We cannot rely upon ourselves. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, personally or corporately. Well, when Paul and Barnabas were relying on the Lord, what was the result? Look at these the beautiful description in Acts 14, verse 3. It says that the Lord testified to the word of his grace by granting these signs and wonders. Tom has been mentioning this very phrase elsewhere and other forms of it, the word of his grace. This gospel grace that Christ would die for sinners, that Christ would humble himself and live and die and rise again and intercede for sinners. This word of his grace, the gospel. It's it's a beautiful message. And he not only testified, how did he testify with these signs and wonders? Now, we don't know what signs and wonders were happening. Were they, was it uh, healing? Like we'll see in verse 10, the man who is healed. Was it casting out demons? Was it other types of miracles? We don't know, but as they were preaching the word, there were signs and wonders happening 
That was God, that was Christ credentialing his gospel and getting their attention that this is from God. It's not merely men preaching, but these uh, this this man in particular, Paul, was an apostle sent by Christ to preach to the Gentiles and the Jews. Listen to what Lenski said. With these signs and wonders, the Lord appended as seals and credentials to his word. It was like he was signing it with his own name. God or Jesus was signing off on this message because he credentialed it with signs and wonders. I thought that was a beautiful description. And may God do it even today as we give out the gospel. We may not see these signs and wonders per se, but we see God's acts of grace in the hearts of people. And even here, even now, may he bless it for his name's sake with his power. May he credential it and as it were sign it off that it's his. Well, they had all these signs and wonders. Was everybody converted? Was every person in that city converted? No. They had some success on the one hand, verse 3, but now verse 4, on the other hand, but the people of the city were divided. What city are they in? Iconium. Yes, they're still in Iconium. And that city was divided some with the Jews and some with the apostles. And I'm taking apostles in the wider sense than merely the 12 plus Paul, those sent with a mission, and we can talk about that later, I know we've covered it before, but the message went out beyond the synagogue because it says the people of the city were divided. So apparently they were preaching here and there and maybe other disciples and people that were saved were telling their family members and the word was spreading like wildfire and that city that was set on fire was now being divided. It's actually the word schizo. They were split. If somebody has schizophrenia, they have a split mind and they have two maybe personalities. This city was split in two, as it were, with believers and unbelievers. And the Jews, they were saying, no, don't believe it. But others, both Jews and Gentiles, were saying, I'm with the apostles. I saw the wonders and the miracles, and I believe that Jesus died for sinners. Imagine if all the city of Tacoma and the Puget Sound were divided. In one sense, it is. As we said at the beginning, you either disbelieve or you believe. But imagine that, that the buzz was so profound. I don't think most, most people are not speaking or thinking about Jesus. Maybe they were and did during Christmas. Why, why was there this Jesus? But in a sense, it's good that the city was thinking and talking and it was very clear they were divided. So lesson three, Don't be surprised the gospel divides. Don't be surprised the gospel divides. divides. Jesus said, do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? Reminds me of some Christmas songs or, or messages maybe where that is overemphasized. Yes, Jesus came to bring peace on the one hand, but he says here, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather... Division. Schizo. That's the word from our passage. 
For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The whole household is split up because some believe and some don't. And some of us came from or are still in households where that's the case. One or two believe, two or three do not. And we keep evangelizing and praying for our loved ones, but the gospel divides. If there's no division, if if everybody is just, we're all one and we're all unified in the whole world, well, that's, that's not gospel unity. Because the gospel divides and Jesus promised that would be the case. It unifies the people of God, but it also divides and it it grieves us and it's sad that this happens, but it is a fact, has been and will be. Well, the division became much worse. It became so bad that in verse 5, it says, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentile and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, They were not only saying, I don't believe in that gospel. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. They were saying, no, we need to find a way to to whip, to beat, to stone these people. The preachers and the disciples, most likely, they were conniving. They had a plan. A plan was hatched, a conspiracy to take out these preachers and believers in Christ. They didn't want this gospel in their town. They wanted only to have disbelief. And they went to their rulers. Did you see that? Both the Jews and the Gentiles. They went to their rulers to get permission, to get support, to mistreat and to stone them. Lesson four in the words of Jesus, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These men came righteously preaching the gospel and people wanted to kill them. And some people who believed also, they wanted to punish and stone them as well as they did Stephen. Jesus goes on in that same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because you're rude, because you're a jerk. No, because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's nothing new all the way back to Cain and Abel. The righteous have been persecuted from the beginning. And it is a blessing to be persecuted for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ. If we're to be persecuted, may it not be because we're rude or we're we're sinful. No, may it be a blessing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ, for the sake of righteousness. Be prepared for persecution. It comes in many forms, in many ways. I want to remind you of the book Operation World and 
I want to encourage myself and you to, and even at prayer meeting, to we keep praying for India, we keep praying for other nations, the gospel to go forth. Think of Pakistan, just as an aside. The fifth largest country in the world. Do you know how many evangelicals are in Pakistan? Of the population? 0.6% of the fifth largest populated country in the world? What do you think happens to those 0.6% believers? I heard a story 30 years ago. A man was converted and his family was kidnapped and he was fired and he couldn't work and, and one of the children died in the kidnapping. And, and these things happen regularly. It says in Operation World, frequently churches are vandalized, destroyed, people are beaten, murdered, abducted, raped, Forced to convert, police are usually cowed by it and complicit with the fanatics and mobs and reparation or justice is often not attained. So persecution has been happening since the beginning and it continues to happen today. So we should pray for the persecuted church. We are relatively, at least physically, we're not being persecuted yet. May God keep it far from us but may we not forget the persecuted church while we live in ease, while we, we don't, we're meeting in a, a city building. Praise God that we have that privilege, but some people earlier today have hid to worship God. And it's, it's, it's a reminder to pray for the persecuted church and they wanted to stone these people who were preaching and believing the gospel. In a few verses, we're going to see Paul was stoned for it. Disbelief or belief. Two responses to the gospel. Well, thankfully, in God's providence, somehow the plot was discovered. Verse 6. They, the, the believers, the, the saints, Paul and Barnabas, they became aware of it and fled. Where did they flee? To the cities of Lyconia, which is, by the way, a region, specifically to the cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. They fled. We said before, it's no sin to flee. It's not wrong to flee. You don't have to just stay there and die. They fled. They went to this region. Maybe open your map if you have one. Forgive me. I'm not as technically savvy as John to get a nice map up here. Maybe I should work toward that. But if you have a map in your Bible, you can see to the right of Iconium the word Lyconia, which is a region. You can see these multiple regions uh, listed there, but among the cities of Lyconia are the actual, among the region of Lyconia are the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And that's where they fled, and there's a whole surrounding region. Now, Lystra is about 20 miles, so at least two days' journey they traveled to from Iconium to Lystra. And Derby was 93 miles away from Lystra. And again, here's the benefit of those Roman roads. It's called the, the Via Sebaste. The Roman roads allowed the gospel to travel through these cities, to and from these cities. 
and the surrounding region. There's actually cities that have been discovered that are not named here, and the surrounding region may apply to cities called Dalisandos, Codilesos, Posala, Ilistra, and Laranda. Uh, there were other cities that are unknown, and so they were, the gospel was spreading, they were on this mission. We don't have all the details of every city they went to, because even here, and they went to this surrounding region. So we can't think too narrowly they were just in this city or just in that city. We hear about specific cities, but they were preaching and traveling in this region, which is really southern Galatia. And that will become significant as we move into the next chapter and even for the epistle of the Galatians. Who? Yes. This is all Turkey, yes. That's right. Thank you, brother. There was a particular person who was from this area. He's going to be mentioned in chapter 16 and became uh, really Paul's son in the faith, who was Timothy. Timothy, it says in 16.1, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So the saints were moving around, they had connections, they updated one another, at least enough that Timothy was known by these cities, and most likely he was from uh, Derby or Lystra. So they fled from Iconium into this region. And what did they do in this region? Verse 7, it says what? And there, in these cities, they continued to preach the gospel. So even when they were fleeing, they were still telling people. They came to this booth or this, uh, this, this souk, you know, where they had the selling all the wares and the things you needed, fruits and vegetables, the marketplace. They continued to preach the gospel. They continued to evangelize and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But their main stop that Luke wants to highlight is in verse 8 at Lystra. At Lystra there was a man sitting who had no strength in his feet lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well or to be saved, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. So we heard about the signs and wonders that were that happened at Iconium. Well, now they're at Lystra, and there's this man um, who who was lame. Again, this city, just to mention quickly, Lystra was, I guess this, they called it the sister city of Pisidian Antioch. We have sister cities here in Tacoma, uh, around the world, in Japan and Korea. There's sister cities. Well, even uh, two thousand years ago. They had sister cities, and Lystra was the sister city of Pisidian Antioch. Surely they had trade. It was a prosperous city. It was prosperous enough that they had a temple to Zeus. But in the midst of all that, Luke and, and God and his providence focuses in on this one man. This one man who emphatically is disabled. It's, it says that he was sitting 
no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. He had always been this way. He had never walked emphatically. Yet, he had faith to be made well or to be saved. And it seems that maybe he had heard the gospel before. Again, we don't always have the details, but Paul noticed the way the man was listening and and, and showed some intensity or maybe the Spirit just revealed to Paul in a combination, this, this man had faith. He was laying down there, and he, he wanted to be healed, and he believed God would do it, that Christ would heal him. So Paul commanded the man to walk, and he jumped up and walked. Immediately, it's, it's like the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. But lesson five, let's pause. Lesson five, behold and adore the sovereign grace of Christ. Behold, see Christ by the hands of the apostles healing this one man. It's sovereign grace. Why him? This man had faith. Others didn't have faith. And you can go back to the Gospels and Jesus said, which is easier to say, be healed or be forgiven of your sins? Sometimes Christ would heal those that had faith. Sometimes he healed those that didn't have faith. And sometimes he healed them and gave them faith. But here, this man had faith, and God and Christ healed him because Paul was preaching Christ, and it was done for the glory of Christ, the the one who could heal bodies and souls. Christ displayed his power through the apostles to heal and credential the gospel. All the people saw what had happened. They had known this man, maybe he was 20, 30, we don't know how old he was, for at least decades, two two decades, the man had laid there. They saw people carrying him around, wheeled him on a cart. They knew he never walked from birth. But now he leapt up immediately because Christ healed him through the hands of the apostles. As in verse 3, the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granted that this sign or wonder be done by their hands. Praise Christ. We see the word of His grace, the grace of Christ, and credentialing the gospel and healing this man. We, We pause, and these chapters can cause us to stop and see the work of Christ through His apostles through Paul and and Barnabas in particular. Verse 11. Remember, this was probably done in the marketplace or out in public because it says when the crowd saw what Paul had done, it wasn't in the synagogue. Maybe it was on the doorsteps if they had a synagogue, but it didn't say they went to a synagogue. They were in this city And when they saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Just take yourself back. I mean, what craziness. The crowds at Lystra saw what had happened. They cried out, not in Greek. They went into their colloquial tongue, this Lyconian language, the region they were in. Maybe the the apostles didn't even know that language. We don't know. And we have the translation, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. 
Now, a lot of the authors, the commentators, tell a story, according to tradition, years prior in this very area, there was a legend that that Zeus and Hermes had come down and nobody really wanted to entertain them and, and the, the place was cursed. So, you know, true or false, there was a legend. At least these people somehow thought that their gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come down from the heavenly Olympia, Olympus, to be among them. And apparently, they had this mind that someone has a loud voice and who stares. I don't know why this is the case, but apparently the people at this time, when, when you would look someone in the eyes and you raised your voice, they thought, this is maybe from the gods. And that's what Paul had done. He was this eloquent speaker, and he looked them in the eyes, and they thought, the gods have come down. And when they saw what had happened, of course, the power, not only of the speech, but they saw a miracle. The man they knew had never walked. He was healed. What a drama. Lesson six. Without faith, the acts of God are always misunderstood. Without faith, the acts of God are always misunderstood. And this is, you couldn't be more misunderstood. The gods have come down, incarnated. Well, they might have had an idea that could get close, but they had the wrong god. The false gods came down, they thought, to us. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand. They didn't understand that Jesus had come in the flesh to die for sinners, and that's the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. They thought that this bold speech and this miracle of healing were from their gods. Verse 12, And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Some have said maybe Barnabas was older and he had maybe gray hair and a beard and he was an old guy and so they thought he was Zeus, the father god. Now why does it say Paul was called Hermes? Chief speaker. Now apparently Hermes was viewed as Zeus's son and he was the mediator or messenger from the gods to humans. So they needed a Hermes to be the go-between. And according to the legend, Hermes was actually the inventor of speech itself. So they heard this eloquent speaker and they saw this man healed and they thought that Zeus himself had come down and here was Hermes, the, the explainer. You know, they're getting close in a way because Jesus explained God uh, to us by coming but they missed it completely. And by the way, these legends of... Yes, Tom. Yes, the word to explain, uh, the, the words, it, it's the same root word that we get hermeneutic, how we interpret the Bible, and Hermes was the interpreter of the gods to the people. Yes, thank you. Yes, good. This, this worship of these deities had been around since 700 B.C. 
uh, Zeus and Hermes had been worshipped that long. There was, you can look up, they still have the ruins of the temple of Zeus in, in Greece. You can see like seven or eight columns are still standing. And we're going to see in a moment, they had a temple here for Zeus. But they had serious worship for these the Greek gods. And of course, the Greek language and the Greek religion had spread all over uh, this region, even here uh, at, at our city where Paul came to preach the gospel. Lesson seven, and, and wrapping it up. Mankind is created to worship and will worship the true God or false gods. We are religious beings. God made us to have a relationship with himself. So if you don't have a relationship with the true God through Jesus Christ, you will invent all sorts of other craziness. And if you just do a survey of false religion, People mock Christians for what we believe and their stories that they come up with and even these gods who, you know, they actually have a, a, a grave for Zeus. What type of god actually would die? Uh, not to be resurrected. Um, no gods at all, of course. Uh, statues. Uh, actually, the temple of Zeus had one of the seven wonders of the world. The statue of Zeus was ivory and gold and, I mean, India, around the world. But of course, those are explicit idols. But of course, we have many other idols that are unseen. And and the, and the most worshipped idol in the world is self. So we're made to be devoted to someone. And when that gets perverted, men and women, boys and girls, will worship all sorts of other things, beings, creatures, uh, the moon, the calendar, twigs, stones, you name it. It can all be worshipped. And you know, it, it's, it's laughable that, they, that what they, they thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. And yet it's, it's grievous that sin has so blinded us. And Paul is going to appeal to the Gentiles by saying who the true God is. And how merciful he's been in giving all good things to be enjoyed by all mankind. More of that next week. But you see the folly of, of unbelief, of sin, the blinding nature that would so confuse. You had the Jews trying to kill them. Then you, you have this, this whole town, the Zeus worshippers, wanting to identify Paul and Hermes as 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 those gods, and in a few moments they're 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 stoning them. Uh, the irrationality of unbelief—it's—it's it's staggering, really, that you could go from wanting to worship someone, and they did the same thing with Jesus, when at the end they were crying, "Crucify him!" And so um, we see the blindness again of unbelief. Well, in review, and we'll wrap it up here. There's only two responses to Christ: belief or Disbelief, verses 1 and 2. Second, gospel work must always be done with reliance upon the Lord. Lord, bless my words and my efforts. Third, don't be surprised the gospel divides. Families, friends, cities. Fourth, 
In the words of our Lord Jesus, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray for the persecuted church and be ready. Fifth, behold and adore the sovereign grace of Christ who healed the man who had faith, yet he was lame for his whole life from his mother's womb. Sixth, without faith, the acts of God are always misunderstood. And here, it's really unbelievable what what the unbelief resulted in. The Jews were trying to kill, but the Gentiles, well, it's foolishness. They couldn't even believe it, and they will stone Paul. Seventh, mankind is created to worship and will worship the true God or false gods. It's been that way from the beginning. Any questions or comments before we close in prayer? Yes, sister. The title, what was the title? Planting Churches at Iconium and Lystra. And we'll hit that, particularly you'll see it in verse 21 through 23. They come back to these towns and appoint elders in every church. So churches had been established and that was their goal and they would do that uh, continue to do that into the future. Anything else? Did I stare and was I loud enough? <laughs> All right, well, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in the gospel, how it has succeeded from the beginning, that you have an elect, that you have a people that you save sinners through the preaching of the gospel. Father, may we go forward and evangelize and spread the good news of Jesus who died for sinners. May we plead with them with reliance upon you and may you show yourself mighty and save people. Lord God, you are the God of salvation. Christ came to save sinners. May you do that even today, even here even in the town of Stillicum, in the state of Washington. It's grievous, Lord, that the, that the cities were divided, yet it shows that the truth went forth and many believed. May it be that way even in our time. And our Father, we do pray for the persecuted church in Pakistan, in India, in China, in Malaysia, in Indonesia. Lord, in America, around the world, wherever your people are persecuted, may you comfort them. May their faith not fail. May you even prepare us, Lord. We, we don't wish it upon ourselves, but Christ said it is a blessing to be persecuted for his name's sake. Oh, Lord, make your word uh, profitable to us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.